Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We are almost to the end of the season. We only have about seven games left in the season. We have some young stars that continue to catch fire at the right time. The Lakers continue their downward trend and LeBron James seems to be a bit peeved about it. Playoff races are tightening up in both conferences and the Nuggets are still rolling without Jamal Murray. And lastly, we will finish with what's the verdict where you will ask me questions on whether somebody or something is innocent or guilty. Let's get started, though, with the young stars catching fire at the right time. Tatum, second youngest, scores 60 points in NBA history against the Spurs. And Doncic becomes the fourth player to ever put up a 30-point, 20-assist, 10-rebound triple-double. Which player had the better game of those two? I mean, this was a monster performance by both players. They both ended up winning. Um, I think that probably the most impressive thing about Luka Doncic's game is that, yes, he had 31 points, 12 rebounds, and 20 assists, but he only had one turnover, which is, to me, incredible that you could have such a high usage, have the ball in your hands that much, get 20 assists, um, attack enough that you have 31 points and only turn it over one time. That is really, really special and incredible. Um, for reference, the only other players that have put up a game like the one he has are Oscar Robertson, Magic Johnson, and Russell Westbrook, only players with 30-point, 10-rebound, 20-assist games. So that's incredible. Um, Jason Tatum becomes the second youngest to score 60 um, behind Devin Booker, which is really impressive as well. But I think what was even more impressive was for him, the Celtics were trailing by 29 points at one point in this game. So Jason Tatum had to come out and really put the team on his back, knowing that the season's winding down, like you mentioned, knowing that he's jockeying for playoff position. Um, for him, this game could potentially be the difference between whether you avoid the play-in tournament or not. So for him to step up when you need it most, with the rest of his team struggling, a combined 7 of 29 from the field that game, he's able to rally his team back. So um, I think the more impressive game was probably Doncic's. Only four players have ever done that before. There's more guys that have scored 60, but I think that it was a more timely performance by Tatum. Yeah, I think Doncic did have an impressive performance overall. I think something that downplays that performance is the fact that the person who he did it against, Russell Westbrook, had a 42-point game, almost had a triple-double of his own. And as you said, he pretty much makes – what Doncic did seem commonplace. So to me, I actually will raise you from one turnover to zero turnovers from Jason Tatum, that entire game, 60 points, zero turnovers. He also had eight rebounds and five assists. So not a triple double, but still being able to distribute the ball as well as crash the boards. And speaking to Deuce here, quoting Tristan Thompson, your daddy is a bad man. A bad <laughs> man. And so I think given the fact that, like you said, it was a from behind victory, they were significantly trailing at the half. It just shows the maturity of the 19 year old that is Jason Tatum. And it shows the 23 year old, 23 year old. He's always 19. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it just That's shows right. his maturity, but it also shows uh, the short term memory that those older players tend to have and need to have in order to next play ball, next man up, 
forget about what happened in the past and just focus on what things you can control. So both amazing games and another uh, awesome game as well. Kevin Porter Jr., youngest to score 50 points with 10 assists. The Rockets, although they have found themselves in the bottom of the standings, seem to have found a bright spot with a guy who berated the Cavs locker room and threw a sandwich, I believe. So it's a... The sandwich throwing incident. Yep. That honestly, this is a superlative that has to go to the Cavs. They're the only team to have multiple food items thrown in their locker room. This has shades of the J.R. Smith soup throwing incident from a couple of years ago. So um, in classic Cavs fashion, when you're frustrated, throw something edible at somebody, it's going to make the headlines. Um, but honestly, though, for the Cavs to lose this guy who Kevin Love literally came out and said was the most talented player on their roster, someone who is on your team is saying that. So, I mean, clearly, even if you don't think he's the future, you must, you must believe he has some value. And they only get a second round pick for the guy. They trade him for nothing, essentially, for a second round pick. I don't understand what the Cavs are doing. I don't think that Kevin Love was right in his assessment to say that he's a left-handed Russell Westbrook. I wouldn't go that far. But the guy clearly has some talent, and he's probably the only positive thing about the Rockets' season besides their, um, besides all the, the draft assets and draft capital they acquired. They actually have a player here that potentially has a, a pretty good ceiling. I mean, he's got decent size. He's already shown um, the ability to consistently score at a high clip. Um, I think that he may have a higher ceiling than the Cavs player that they're building around right now. And um, sorry, I forget his name. Colin Sexton. Colin Sexton, exactly. So um, if you think about it, it might have been better to keep him and maybe have that combination instead of having Colin Sexton paired with another undersized guard in Darius Garland, where now you're starting a backcourt of two guys under 6'2". Six, six um, I don't know what the Cavs are doing, but very impressed performance by Kevin Porter Jr. Who knows, he might have the potential to be an all-star someday. Yeah, well, if there's anything you can guarantee, it's questionable management from the Cavs. But speaking of the Cavs, LeBron James, now in the Lakers, returns, but the Lakers are still losing. He's come out and complained about his ankle. He's come out and complained about this playoff format. Sounds like he's starting to make excuses for what could be the Lakers missing the playoffs. So what's wrong with the Lakers? Honestly, this is what I said um, a couple of weeks back, I think. I just don't know that the lineup is a great fit with, Andrew, or, uh, with Andre Drummond in the starting lineup with AD and LeBron. The spacing is just really bad. And then to compound the issue, they have Dennis Schroeder, who's now going to miss some time. LeBron has to re-rest his high ankle sprain, which apparently he's never going to be the same for him again. Uh, and AD has had a hard time getting consistently good looks with Andre Drummond eating up real estate in the paint. So this is just, I think, a poor fit um, personnel-wise. I honestly don't think that they're going to figure it out in time for the playoffs because they're already not winning right now. LeBron has to sit. Um, Schroeder, a big piece of the puzzle, has to sit. The Drummond and AD chemistry isn't working. I just don't see it all just coalescing and suddenly 
LeBron gets this thing going at the 11th hour, especially when there's the possibility that he may really have to play in this playing tournament. That may really happen. And for a team that's already kind of hobbled, coming off injuries, that's the last thing you need is to have to play extra games when you have your, your big stars both coming back from injuries. So honestly, I think it's just a combination of bad injury luck and also bad roster fits. Yeah, I agree with you on both of those. And in our potential rankings last week, I said that they would fall behind uh, likely the Warriors or um, potentially the Trailblazers. And it's looking likely that that will happen if they continue to keep reeling. Um, And who knows if a Spurs or Memphis Grizzlies team catches the Lakers at the right time, maybe they knock them off and uh, it'll be LeBron missing the playoffs two out of his three years in LA, which obviously is taken care of by the fact that they won last year, but still not something that you want uh, when you're about at the end of your career uh, from LeBron's standpoint. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, especially in the playoffs when matchups become a lot more important. I really do think that it's going to be tough for them to get quality looks on a consistent basis. I know that teams are purposely going to leave Andre Drummond open if he goes out to the perimeter and if he doesn't go out to the perimeter and he stays in the paint, there's not really a whole ton of room for LeBron or AD to get in there unless it's off offensive rebounds. Um, He's not really a pick and pop threat. So he doesn't really have that dynamic going for him. It's just going to be really tough for them to get quality looks when you have three players in your starting lineup that you can't really say are knockdown perimeter shooters um it's it's just really tough i think that they may ask him to come off the bench which is probably going to help their offense but at the same time create the drama of oh my god they're sitting andre drummond on the bench after saying that they were going to give him a big role you know you hear rumblings of marcus all saying that um he doesn't agree with the rotation of the big men you hear kyle kuzma saying that there's chemistry issues it just seems like this is going to be one of those playoffs where lebron is going to get bounced early Yeah, I agree. Well, talking a little bit more about the standings, LeBron and the Mavericks with Doncic are tied right now for five and six with the Trailblazers after their loss, uh, sitting one game behind. And the East, similarly, five through seven is very tight with the Hawks, Heat, and Celtics within one and one and a half games of one another. So from the East and from the West, who do you think has the best shot of the worst spot with the play-in game and ends up at seven? Uh, This is honestly for the East, probably a little bit harder than for the West for me because my my, um, objective mind would want to say it would be the Hawks because I would think that on paper, the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics are better teams than the Hawks are. And I'd probably pick either of those teams to beat the Hawks in a series. But right now, the Hawks are just playing more consistently than the Heat or the Celtics are. The Celtics, unfortunately, just had that situation happen where um, Tatum and Brown collided, and now Brown is probably going to miss a little bit of time. So we're going to have to see, can Tatum truly do it all by himself? That's what it's going to really come down to with um, their second leading scorer, who's putting up close to 27 points a game um, out of the lineup. It's going to be a lot of points to replace. And then you have the Heat, who it seems like they can never have 
a consistent lineup for more than three to four games at a time. They always have guys in and out. There's always someone missing for one reason or another. We have still not really seen this team healthy for a good stretch of time all year long. And also they're the one team out of those three that actually has a negative differential, which is probably due to how many blowouts they've had during games that they've been missing key personnel. So, um, I mean, in my opinion, if I'm a gambling man, I'd probably say that it's probably going to have to be the Celtics going into that play-in tournament. You have the Heat and the Celtics are going to play two games against each other coming up. Um, and that's going to determine the fate of if there's a tiebreaker and also who's going to solidify that sixth spot. I don't think the Hawks are going to drop out. They've, they're six and four in their last 10. They're doing all right. They're probably going to hold down um, either the five or the six. But I expect the Heat, if they can get Jimmy Butler and their guys playing, I expect them to beat the Celtics if they're missing um, Jalen Brown. So I think the Celtics are probably the one that's going to be bound for the, for the play-in tournament. Yeah, I agree with you on all fronts. And if you look at the people that each of these teams are playing, the Hawks definitely have the easiest road to get into the playoffs. So I definitely see them staying in the five or the six spot. Um, the Heat, like you said, have been very inconsistent. And even without Tatum and Brown, you saw what the Heat did when the Hawks were without most of their stars. They still folded. So I think that there is the potential for them to land into that play-in tournament spot. Um, but I do think that it'll end up being the Celtics overall. I think that they have the most difficult route to get there. They are sitting half a game back. Um, and with their inconsistent level of play, the fact that they will be missing one or both of their stars, I think that they end up being the, the team that has to play probably the Hornets to start that play-in tournament piece. Yep, I agree with you. What do you feel about what we're looking at out in the West? That's another tight one with the Mavericks sitting at five and the Lakers tied with them, 37 and 28. The Blazers just one game back at 36 and 29. Yeah, so I, I think I referred to what we just talked about five minutes ago. I think that the Lakers having their chemistry issues, their depth issues, their injury concerns – I see them continuing this downward trend. And I said it last week when we made our predictions that they would be in the play-in tournament. I'm still holding true to that prediction. If you look at the Lakers schedule to end, they play the Clippers on Thursday. They play Portland on Friday. They play Phoenix on Sunday. They play New York on Tuesday. So four games, all four of them, very likely that they could lose, especially Thursday, Friday with LeBron sitting out. But Phoenix and New York are definitely not easy teams. Then they have Houston, Indiana, and New Orleans. Of those, I think they could probably win two out of three, um, maybe all three, but still, that's an under 500 record for those games. So I think the Lakers have the toughest schedule heading into the playoffs, but also with their chemistry issues with how they've been playing lately, I think that they end up finding their way to the seventh seed. Yeah, I got to agree with you. I think that the Mavericks are the easy pick to take the fifth spot. They're the only ones out of those three teams that actually are playing winning basketball over the last 10 games at seven and three. The Lakers are three and seven in their last 10, and the Blazers are four and six. So um, at this point, it's going to really come down to the Blazers and the Lakers between which one of these is going to wind up in the play-in. And um, I think it'd have to be the Lakers, if not just because like you mentioned, 
they have the toughest route and they're also going to be missing LeBron for a couple of those games. I would pick a Blazers squad with a motivated Lillard over a LeBron-less Lakers with a tougher schedule. Yep, I agree. But moving on to another team in the West, the Nuggets, who people thought were left for dead when Jamal Murray was out. They've been on a roll. They are, after their loss recently, 8-2 and two in their last 10, but they've been 9-1 and one before that in their last 10. They've firmly locked themselves into the three or four spot, depending on how the Clippers and them end the season. So with their success without Jamal Murray, is Jokic a lock for MVP? I think it has to be. At this point, he's overcome everything that has been thrown at him. He's been performing at an elite level. And on top of that, I think what's most important is no matter who has been integrated into the lineup, be it a new big addition in Aaron Gordon or who has, lo- or who has been lost from the lineup like Jamal Murray, the Nuggets have been rolling. And the Nuggets record would honestly be a lot better right now if it wasn't for the horrible start that they had where they were playing really uncharacteristic basketball. They started out terrible. But after the first two months of the season, they've really been playing some great basketball. And um, it largely has to do with the fact that Nikola Jokic stabilizes this team. He does everything for them. He's the best playmaking big man in the history of the league. And I don't think at this point you can really argue it. And he's scoring efficiently and in high volume. He's providing surprisingly solid defense. And the Nuggets are rolling. And he's the only MVP candidate that hasn't gone out publicly asking to be named the MVP, which I I think I respect that even more. He says that he plays for something larger than that, that he doesn't care about it. He may not care about it, but I'm telling you, this is his year. He's going to be bringing home that trophy to Denver. And I think it's well-deserved. It's nice to see. Um, somebody, a big man, finally break the streak of big men winning MVPs. I mean, there has not been a center that's won MVP for quite some time now. I can't remember the last one. So um, it'll be nice to see Jokic get it. Well-deserved. Yeah, I mean, in the traditional sense of big men, I mean, you could look to Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki, and Shaquille O'Neal as the last three big men. I think Giannis is kind of a special talent that people don't really – um, it's hard to say what Giannis is. He's like a perimeter perimeter player that looks like a center, but plays on the perimeter. Interesting. Yeah, but another interesting tidbit, this will be uh, the first time since Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki where uh, foreign players win it three years in a row with Giannis taking it home two years in a row the last two years and Jokic winning this year as well. So it's good to see the expansion of uh, the overall talent globally within the league. Yeah, it's awesome. Another aspect, though, that can't be overlooked with this Nuggets team is Michael Porter Jr.'s ascension. Um, I've always thought, I've said it earlier, it could have been a hyperbole at the time, but I thought he was probably one of the most talented players in that draft class. I thought he could have been a potential number one selection in that draft and potentially other drafts if it wasn't for the fact that he had that um, back surgery scare off a lot of teams. But he has really elevated his game ever since Jamal Murray's gone down. Um, His numbers have truly been phenomenal. He's averaging right now in his last 10, 25.5 points per game, 6.9 rebounds, 1.8 blocks, showing you that he's improving his defense 
and knocking down 48% of his threes on high volume attempts for a guy who is six foot 10 and has great athleticism. I honestly think that his ceiling is higher than Jamal Murray's and he stands to potentially be maybe a more important piece to the puzzle than Murray. Um, obviously Murray's already under contract long-term, but if you're the nuggets, you, you can't lose this guy. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they're going to have an issue if it comes to uh, sharing the ball and egos in the future um, when Jamal Murray comes back. Yeah, it'll be interesting because you know that he's not going to want to take the back seat after um, excelling in this role. So it'll be really interesting. But that's the thing. They have Jokic, at least, who's the main playmaker and cog. So having him help stabilize everything and get everybody in their sets. So it's a really nice thing to have him as a stabilizing force. Absolutely. All right. So moving on to one of our favorite segments, what's the verdict? I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and you're going to let us know if they are guilty or innocent. Let's do it. All right. So talking about LeBron James, he's been having a really big issue with this playing tournament. He's been complaining a lot lately. He's come out and said that he's never going to be 100% again in his career after his high ankle sprain. Um, this is after players like Kevin Durant, who have torn Achilles, have come back and played pretty, pretty elite ball. He's out here saying that whoever invented the play-in tournament should be fired. Um, he's all around just throwing tantrums. Is he guilty of making excuses? I mean... Yeah, I think if you think about LeBron and the level of talent he has, but also just how strategic he is with his investments, with his moving around to different cities, um, with his just control of things, this is just hedging his, his bets. If they lose and they're ousted, then he easily can point back and say, you know, I had to rush myself back. I said I wasn't fully rested. I knew I wasn't going to be 100%, blah, 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 blah. And if they win, then he can say, this is one of the toughest championship runs that any team has ever had to face. Last year, we thought it was yep. tough, but this year, especially given the fact that we had to be in this dumb play in tournament, my ankle still wasn't 100%. And all the adversity that comes with that, to overcome that, my five rings are more impactful than Kobe's rings or my five rings are more impactful than Michael's six or so on and so forth. So it's just him hedging his bets and him, yes, coming up with excuses, but also strategically uh, publicizing like this narrative that he can eventually point back to in the future. Yeah, to be honest, I hate it when he does this because – or when anyone does things like this, because it ruins competitive spirit and nature. Look, things happen every year. There's going to be injuries that happen. You know that that's a part of the game. Injuries are a part of the game of basketball. That's going to happen. Do you hear Michael Jordan making excuses if he's hurt or any of those types of people making excuses? No, look, it's going to happen. Don't come out and make excuses about it. You just give it your best shot. And if it doesn't pan out, we know you were hurt. You don't have to come out and start making excuses. He wants it in such a way that if other people beat him, they have less validation or credit because he came out and said he was never going to be the same, like he said, but then also be able to have the extra pat on the back if somehow he pulls it off. 
it's like a win-win for him and a lose-lose for everyone else. And I think it's honestly cowardly and really just points to his insecurity. He comes off as a player that is very confident. Um, he always speaks from a position of confidence and whatever. But you know what? It seems like he really does care what other people think because the fact that he has to come out and say this preemptively is because he's clearly concerned what people are going to write about him after this playoff run. He's scared that it's going to be negative. So the fact that he cares this much and has to potentially try to soften the criticism when it comes, I think that's just weakness. If he was truly as confident and uh, secure in himself as he says he is, he wouldn't feel the need to start throwing out preemptive excuses for people. And he wouldn't care what people write because he'd be confident in his own legacy. But that's just uh, my opinion. But moving on to um, the future, one of the young futures of the league after discussing LeBron, who seemingly has been on top for the last decade, Luka, is, Luka Doncic is actually starting to um, get a little bit of superstar treatment. Seems like Luka is starting to argue calls a lot more to the tune of a few extra technical fouls and now finds himself one technical away from a league-mandated suspension. Do you think that Luca might be guilty of expecting too much superstar treatment? Is he arguing too much? Or is it just that the refs are a little bit loose with their tees? They're both guilty. Both parties are guilty. Double jeopardy. I don't like Luca is definitely guilty of trying to get too much superstar treatment and trying to approach the refs too often. And the refs all season have been way too loose with their whistles. They gave, I think, Draymond a tech uh, several months back when he cursed at James Weissman because James Weissman made a mistake. So they thought he was talking to a player on the opposite team. Then he's like, I'm just I'm talking to this guy. You can the only reason you can hear me because there's no fans in here. So I think the lack of fans has something to do with it because the refs can hear more. I think they've been much looser with their whistle this season, but I also think that Luca has been trying to get too much preferential treatment. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Definitely what you mentioned about the fans must have a role for sure. But um, I think that definitely at the end of the season, the league should do something about looking at the amount of tees that were called this year, because I'm sure that it's definitely higher than the average amount by more than just your standard error. So I think that definitely something has to be done to address the situation. Um, it's not fun for the fans. It's not fun for anyone. I think that tees are something that should be reserved for something that truly deserves it and not just something you throw around. Um, that's what personal fouls are for. So if it's a ticky-tack call, don't call it. But um, moving on, another team out in the West that's making some moves, the Suns, currently sitting at number one. Chris Paul, though, seems to be the major driving force in that train. Chris Paul actually leads Devin Booker on the MVP ladder, and he also receives more support for MVP voting than Devin Booker did. And if you recall at the All-Star game, Chris Paul was selected ahead of Devin Booker for the All-Star Game. Fans chant MVP for Chris Paul, not for Devin Booker. And Devin Booker has also regressed this year in all stats, despite still having an otherwise good year. I'm not saying he's having a bad year, but his numbers are down from where they were the last two years. Is Chris Paul guilty of stealing the Suns from Devin Booker and taking the lead star role? 
probably, but Devin Booker had played before Chris Paul on terrible teams. Devin Booker had played with something like 90-something teammates, four different head coaches, has had no continuity. So, sure, he has a good contract now. He's on a team that's winning. Maybe his stats take a little bit of a hit. But overall, he's gotten the money. He has the girlfriend. He has the sunny, great weather. The only thing he really hasn't had is winning. And I think Chris Paul, everywhere he goes, brings winning with him. And Chris Paul is going to retire in the next three to four years. So if Chris Paul retires in the next three to four years and Devin Booker has to take somewhat of a backseat to where he used to be, and that means that he's in championship contention every year and potentially wins one, then I don't think he's going to complain about it at all. So Chris Paul may be guilty, but I think Devin Booker enjoys him being guilty in that regard. Yeah, I can't complain. Or I can't. Uh... I can't say you're wrong about that, and I don't think that Devin Booker can complain. He's definitely got a good situation, regardless of if he's the number one or the number two option. This has got to be the most fun he's had playing basketball in a long time. But uh, moving on to Mike Budenholter and Terry Stotts, two coaches who have honestly been on the hot seat for quite some time now, it seems, and their seats are heating up as we approach the end of the year. Are they guilty of wasting the prime years of the great talents they've been able to coach? So if you've been listening since episode one or two, there were two coaches that I said that would be on the hot seat this year. Lloyd Pierce, if he didn't perform as expected, would be fired in the middle of the season. That prediction came true. Hawks are now solidly in contention after sitting at about the 10 spot when Lloyd was fired. And Mike Budenholzer, if the Bucks had another early exit, which reports are showing that that is likely. So they're absolutely guilty of wasting prime years of Giannis and Damian Lillard slash Cesar McCollum from the Trailblazers. Terry Stotts has been rumored to be fired for the last three years. I don't know why Portland has not pulled the trigger because clearly they can't make it out of the second round. And in addition to that, Looking at the potential coaching candidates, there are some attractive candidates out there for these teams. I've seen Chauncey Billups and Jason Kidd as two potential links to go to Portland. So I think either one of those guys would be uh, a good fit. I think Jason Kidd's had some time to learn from some of the mistakes he made in Milwaukee and would be great for Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. Chauncey has always been a great mind in the game and is having uh, his first coaching experience now with the Clippers. So I think either of those guys would be a great fit over there. But before you respond, I actually wanted to give you a little bit of insight based on the last verdict that we gave for technical fouls. Um, there have been on a per game basis average about 0.38 more technical fouls per game. Um, I took all of the fouls from this season, which were about 506 technical fouls compared to last season, which was 607. Um, but last season had a fuller schedule um, this season. More games. Yeah, and this season has not completed. So I, I do think that the refs are being slightly uh, more loose overall. I'd have to take a look at, at um, like a, a T-test or an ANOVA test to test the differences between these means. But 
it does look like there's a bit of a difference between the two. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Honestly, it probably does have, like you said, the, the fans not being there probably does play an effect. They can hear it that much more. So um, I'm sure it plays a role. But back to Mike Budenholzer and Terry Stotts, I don't, I don't know that they're like guilty of necessarily wasting the prime years of these talents because I just feel like in the case of especially Mike Budenholzer, I don't know that they could have gotten really much more out of the teams that they had based on the rosters that they had. Look at the roster that Damian Lillard has been working with for the last couple of years. Like I've said before, outside of CJ McCollum, who honestly I don't think is the greatest positional fit alongside him. You're always going to be at a disadvantage defensively if you start both Lillard and McCollum as your starting backcourt. That's a really undersized backcourt. And the Blazers have had defensive issues for many of the seasons that Terry Stotts has been at the helm, and that's largely why. But um, I think that that's, that's part of it. It's just, I think it's more to blame on the general managers for not being able to build around this talent and giving these coaches a team that realistically could win it all. I would not have picked the Blazers to be the favorite or even considered a serious championship contender based on their roster in any of the last five to six years. Their roster has always been clearly at a deficit compared to some of the other um, rosters in, in the West, especially. And it always seems like it has to come down to Damian Lillard um, pulling off heroics to get his team through. And I don't really think that that's as much of Terry Stotts' fault as much as that's what they have to work with on that roster. You can say that Terry Stotts' offense is bland and it basically just revolves around, hey, CJ, hey, Lillard, you guys take turns. You guys do everything. I think that you can say that, yeah, maybe another coach could have implemented a better offense, but the end result probably would have been about the same. I don't think that a changing coach would have gotten them a ring. And same with Giannis and the Bucks. I think that, I mean, having Eric Bledsoe and Chris Middleton, who's not a bad player, as your next two best guys has put them at a deficit for, for many years. No one thought that just Giannis by himself that season that they had the number one record going into that season. No one was expecting that. So you could say that Budenholzer has actually overachieved expectations many seasons. Yes, in the playoffs, he underachieves relative to what he does in the regular season, but that's because he always overachieves in the regular season relative to what we think he's going to get because he always outperforms his roster's talent, which even now still, I wouldn't say that the Bucks' talent level is as good as some of the other teams in the East. So um, I don't really know if it's the coach's fault. I think it's more on the general managers for not building around those players. Yeah, I agree. But at the end of the day, they try to inject some new life by bringing in a new coach into those systems. But with that, that's the end of Court of Opinion. Like us, subscribe to us, listen every week on Wednesdays. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stu. Court is adjourned. <laughs>